0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: Morning, Matt. Good to see you, Paul. Nice beard. Oh, thanks. I've been working on it. That's my main project. Wow, it's impressive. It,
2: do I look divine? Well, just you know, you look Orthodox, which is about as close as we can get, I suppose. <laughs>
1: well, I'm going for <laughs> divinity. I want to go straight
2: to you know, David Rawls. It's good to see you, my friend. Hey, you, you too, Matt. Uh,
3: I, I, I wanted to come back with a good joke after the whole Orthodox one, and
2: so <laughs> Isaiah. It's nice to meet you. I'm Matt. Hello, Matt. I'm calling from uh, Indianapolis. Where? How about you? South Korea. Oh, wow. What time is it there?
4: 11 o'clock at night.
2: Oh, wow. <laughs> wow, the dedication to, to theology is impressive.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Since Isaiah is uh, a bit new, here is a description of the class. It's a kind of unimpressive title, but, but let me explain the title. Living in the Kingdom. And my presumption here, and this is in the article I'm having you read, Stanley Howells nicely explains that we are living out of the resource of peace, out of the resource of the kingdom that is already an accomplished fact. It's not something that we establish, but it has been established. I'm afraid that if we, as happens in some notions of peace, The idea is that we are in some way obligated to establish an absent peace. But that's precisely, I think, to miss the peace that is in Christ. It is a study of the peaceful Christian traditions. I assume that nonviolence can be equated with the peace of the gospel. And this is going to come up again and again in the history of the church. That is that with this understanding, there is a whole bundle of understandings. It's there in the early church that if you're a Christian, you're not a soldier. If you're a Christian, Mm -hmm. your participation in government, we're going to lose a great deal of that understanding and lose is the wrong word. But let me use that word for the moment in the Constantinian shift. The reason that it's not quite the right word is those understandings are going to continue in spite of the history that I think we have. That is, there's a normative understanding, and then there's the history that's been passed down to us. And that normative understanding, I believe, is going to continue to be that Christians don't kill people, which sounds simple. But of course, in the Constantinian shift, it will literally come about that Not only are Christians favored in the military, but Roman soldiers, I think, what is it, 384, the Edict of Constantinople, that they, in fact, have to be Christian to be soldiers. First 300 years of the church For the most part, you could not be a Christian soldier, and I know there's exceptions to that, but even where there's exceptions, I think we can explain those exceptions. This is going to be aggravated, obviously. So the Constantinian shift, you know, what do we mean by that? It's not simply what happens with Emperor Constantine. It's it's also what happens with the Protestant Reformation. And my point with the Protestant Reformation, it's actually an aggravation that in uh, the various reform documents, that there is the first time that just war is included in the confessions, uh, in, in any of the three branches of Protestantism that just war is put in there. But my point with this is not simply the negative, but to say that nonetheless, I don't, I don't believe the gospel is defeated, that we're doing a history, but I, in a sense, I don't know that this history is even possible. I don't believe that the true history of the church has been written, but throughout this class, we're going to do our best to trace kind of the underside of things, the common people's experience in it.
2: You said that the true history of the church has not yet been written. And what
1: I mean by that is that the powerful write the history. Mm -hmm. The institutions write the history. And we tend to imagine, for example, that in the Constantinian shift, everybody is participating and acceding to what is handed down by Constantine. You know, the prime voice that we get, theologically, out of the Constantinian shift, is uh, Augustine. And Augustine is disgusting in terms of, I think, what is a biblical theology. I think that in Augustine, we can see a radical departure from basic understandings in the New Testament. I believe that the common people, common experience, and by common, I'm not excluding priests, I'm not excluding anybody, in fact, but the understanding is that there is a normative experience that we may be blinded to because we're just caught up in what is passed down to us. And so I think the very nature of the gospel, it is the outcast, it is the despised. If you think of history in terms of that which is recorded in the symbolic order you know, the law. If we just say, well, you know, what is the law that has been suspended by the cross of Christ? I think that law is an all-inclusive symbolic order, you know, that place where people make their mark, that place where history is written, that place that establishes people. And that's precisely not the gospel. The gospel suspends the valuation of Jew-Gentile slave-free or in the case of the United States, black, white. You know, if you were to write the true history of the church in the United States, who might be qualified to write that history? I'm assuming that if we are blind to the black experience in the United States, that we've missed the truth of the story of those who have taken up the cross, those who are the outcasts, those who... In fact, Jesus identifies with and those who identify with Jesus. If you think of James Baldwin or or James Cone, James Baldwin began his life as a preacher. The fire next time is really a beautiful, beautiful is the wrong word, but a a depiction of kind of the impossibility of somebody who has their eyes wide open, being black, being persecuted. And the understanding that this persecution, this notion that whiteness is the symbolic order determinative of people's identity, is so oppressive that to identify as Christian is in some way to accede to the power of this symbolic order. And I'm just I'm just describing James Baldwin. James Cohn gives us an alternative to that. In his the cross and the lynching tree, the typical black experience and Christian experience in America, rightly so, is kind of is anger, and I think that Cone describes facing that anger, facing the reality. I think the same reality that Baldwin faced, but because he was able to you know actually talk about lynching, you know the cross and the lynching tree, and to recognize, oh wait a minute, the lynching tree. That looks like the cross, and the cross looks like a lynching tree. Cohn says that actually just being able to identify that, and he describes a liberating experience that you can also find in the Radical Reformation. You know, the Reformation comes with also the Radical Reformation, the peace churches, and the idea of ability, as Paul will say, You know, in regard to slavery, in regard to marriage, in regard to social status. As if not, it's not that we obliterate the law. It's not that we abolish the symbolic order. That's a that's an impossibility. We are all, in some way, going to have to negotiate social status, marital status, economic status. But the way that Paul describes it, I think, accords with the depiction in Romans, but also Jesus' depiction. When he describes Israel, you know, that he sees a fig tree that has died, and he said we need to render this tree, you know, actually he's saying cut it down. But the the Greek word that is used there is the same word that Paul uses in Romans when he talks about that the law is suspended, that its effect no longer applies. It's not abolished, which we get in some translations. But its punishing effect, its condemnation is suspended. I think we can we've had a too narrow notion of what law is, that we've tended to think of law just simply as the commands, the Ten Commandments. But of course, in both Paul's description, Paul will often relate it to marriage or to human sexuality or to the, the Jew-Gentile slave-free, the, the, uh, or he'll relate it to what you eat, the food laws. Jesus is just talking about all the institutions of Israel. So that once we get a grasp of what the law actually is, we realize it's an all-inclusive category that is everything that what a Jew is, but of course, the, it's not just the Jews, But the law of sin and death, that every human being is is having the same experience, culturally, socially, religiously, that this thing that is oppressing us, that is the symbolic order, that is not something you can escape or abolish, but you can suspend. And that's going to be an insight that's there in the Radical Reformation. But of course, I think it's already there, In the first 300 years of the church, it's there in Paul's descriptions of how he's negotiating Rome. The way that John Howard Yoder will describe this is as a radical subordination. Subordination is not the same thing as obedience, right? In other words, Jesus submitted to Rome, to to the Jews, to crucifixion. Paul is going to submit to beheading. All of the apostles are going to submit to martyrdom, but that very submission is an act of defiance. In other words, there is a a radical subordination that is not acceding to the powers of the law, but in fact is a means of undermining the law, the the means of not being controlled by the law. And of course, what we're talking about in martyrdom, in in the crucifixion, is the ability to face that reality, but not be controlled by it. This is resurrection power. This is the experience of as if not, is the phrase that Paul uses in Corinthians. Or it's the suspension of the law that he uses in Romans 6 and 7. I presume that someone like James Cone, when he's describing the liberating effect of the cross that it had upon him, He's able to look the black experience squarely. in. in other words, I think sometimes we just can't, we can't see and we can't bear to look at what's right in front of us. You know, think of the lynching tree. It's so abhorrent. I think that we've in some sense lost the abhorrence of the cross, that people lynched Christ, mm-hmm. and we've tended to, to take that thing and tame it. But of course, what Cohn recognizes, and I think what we all need to recognize, is the evil that Christ is confronting in the cross. That's what I mean here. The experience. It did did I answer your
2: question, Matt? That's that's I guess that's this class, right? To an, is an attempt to answer, explain that answer in more in more depth.
1: We do have in people like Cohn, I think in James Baldwin. In certain experiences, that there is a voice that's told, but I assume that history throughout the history of the church just can't be written. The people at the bottom, the people that are persecuted, the people that are slaughtered and wiped out, and very often by the church, they're going to not be given a voice. That doesn't mean that there aren't these people and that there isn't this experience. It's just that his history I think truly is recorded or tends to be recorded by the victors. But of course, the Bible itself is a narrative. You know, the whole point of scripture is a depiction of history by the losers and losers here in quotes, because Israel, of course, is a subject nation. It has no world of historical importance. Jesus is, he's an obscure peasant from a region of an obscure country that's kind of Hicksville. The whole story is identification with outcasts, with the poor, and the very notion you know, Jesus' pronouncement of what he's come for. It's to dispossess the rich. It's to, you know, over and against the principalities and powers in the language of Paul. I assume that what we get in institutionalized history, in standard church history, is history as recorded by the powers in a way that should go against the grain of all of us because we all presume I'm this church or I'm that church. And we imagine that if we can tell the story clear back to Jesus, my point is, oh, I don't think that story is tellable. And just imagining to identify with a history as we have it may in fact be to miss the point. It's almost very Nietzschean of you. (laughs) Also.
2: truth is less a function, or I guess in your case, you know, history is less a function of truth as it is of power.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think Nietzsche gets it right. And of course Nietzsche is just doing the, the uh, much of what he's doing is taking, I think, New Testament categories and utilizing them as with, you know, that is the postmodern turn. It is a deployment of biblical categories an insight into power and the functioning of power that recognizes he describes Christianity as a slave religion, as a a religion for those who would be not the uberman, but the slaves. He says it's a despicable religion because of this identity with weakness and powerlessness. I think he's right in his depiction of this kind of despicable. I think that if you get Christianity right, It should have that appearance of, oh, this identifies with all that we find most abhorrent. And I think that the identification of Christianity with the respectable, with the powerful, with the pompous, with the arrogant, with the kings and rulers, but popes and bishops, I think that Nietzsche is right, that rightly understood this is a slave religion. Of course, he's going to say the same thing about Judaism, and I think he's right there, too. He's not anti-Semitic, by the way, but I, I just think that what you get in somebody like Michel Foucault, is, who is doing Nietzsche, is Foucault begins to do an entire history of all the institutions of the West, including prisons, you know, insane asylums, or just human knowledge. And his is a very Nietzschean project, but I think it's also a very Christian project, in that he's demonstrating that power is the controlling factor in the institutions of the West, whether we need to limit to the West, but that's what his primary focus is on. It is the, a Christian insight to recognize that the institutions are inevitably the shaping force of power, and Christianity is, has the capacity to see beyond those institutional powers, the principalities and powers, and recognize the true history or reality itself. In other words, that's what it comes down to. This symbolic order, this law, it constitutes people's reality. And we should be able to, in some way, deconstruct that given reality and see behind, pull the curtain back and be able to see, oh, this is the nothingness at the center of this reality. And so the cross of Christ is, step one, a deconstructive capacity, an ability to name the idols. Well, the idols are always with us in those things that we would reify or set up as powerful in the culture. The place that you're going to get the true insight is not from the people in power, but from the people who are at the bottom of these institutions, the people who are dismissed I hesitate to use the word invisible, because, you know, of course, that's what Augustine is going to say about the church, that with the accession of Constantine, the church becomes invisible. But I think that that invisibility is not what I'm describing, because what what Augustine meant is, well, the, the church is now of two parts. It is the, you know, earthly side of the church that we can see, but that has nothing to do with the reality. And so his idea is the church is, you know, made up of those chosen souls going to heaven. So I don't mean that notion of invisibility, but I just mean the notion like we get in somebody like James Baldwin or James Cone, that people are rendered invisible by the symbolic order that we're all subject to. And it's something that we have to, I think we have to almost see this in ourselves. This is should be a kind of personal experience for all of us. Oh, that we've been blinded ourselves. This is this amazing grace that I was blind, but now I see. What did John Newt? What was he enabled to see? Well, even as a Christian, he had been a slave trader. And suddenly he realizes what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, that we're all subject to these powers, and we need to to recognize the way that they shape us. It's not something that any of us are free of. You do, you can't just say, "Oh, that you know that doesn't affect me." No, it affects it all. All of us. We're all shaped by these things. And so the the gospel is a deep step one, name the idol. Step two is well, don't worship the idol.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: We're free in the the punishing effect of bowing down to these powers. You know, it is always punishing, and this is partly James Baldwin's depiction of whiteness in America, that these people in some way are self-despising, that, you know, to not recognize. And I think he's right. I think you can just read all of the anger of James Baldwin. We need to look at that. We need to dwell there and realize the truth in black experience in the United States. But I think you can say the same thing, you know, in Korea, Isaiah, in any Asian society, I know in Japan, there is an entire invisible caste in Japan that even many Japanese don't know about. The burakumin, the bad word in Japanese is eta. It's sort of like the N-word. But, uh, you know, you ask kids in college about these people who there's whole villages, there's a whole caste, and they don't know about it. And so yeah, I think, I've seen it. I assume that I don't know of Korea as well, but Korea is a country that, of course, I was there forty years ago. But it is a country that is dominated by, you know, a class system in which the rich—that's probably leveled out to a great deal. But I just think it's just true of human culture.
4: It, it has, uh, Mr. Axton, but um, if. I'm not sure if you gotta see the movie Parasite.
5: Yeah, yeah.
4: It 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 won (laughs) that's right. It won that's right. It won the the best picture, but is kind of a an analogy about them like living underground or the guy living underground. A very similar thing like that with society. So yeah, there is a there is definitely that here. And especially if you're foreign, I'm American, so I have a higher class as foreigner, but the black, the black and the dark people, they're they're definitely not treated as humans, as,
1: as equals. Yeah, parasite. That's the perfect example of what we're talking about. They literally live in the basement. They are mm-hmm. hidden down in underneath and come out at night. Yeah, that's the perfect example. In Japan, if you're Korean, if you're Chinese, or if you're black, in fact, the the prejudice, you know, the weight of that, I think, is is unbearable. And of course, the point of being a Christian is we don't ignore that, but we acknowledge that and look at it. My presumption with this is that history will always be written from the bottom. In other words, if you're going to describe the Christian experience or the reality of those who have taken up the cross, it's not going to be the powerful. I'm curious about the situation in India. And who writes history? I assume that the untouchables, and I may be wrong. In fact, I know that, and in fact, there be, is a kind of a politicization of the caste system. But I assume that historically, that is not a history that is easily accessible.
6: Yeah, it is not. I think it is only with the advent of, it's only post-colonization post-colon- and all of that, that things have changed in India. Right. I don't know if it is good or bad, but that's what has happened. And the untouchables found a voice later on, a voice they didn't have earlier uh, Earlier on throughout the other centuries, as far as my knowledge goes. So it was pretty much in the control of the upper caste society. So the Brahmins were in, were in control. Even the, the scriptures which were translated in India to the native languages here were done by the upper caste people. So that system kind of always existed and still does exist in a sort of weird manner. I, I still think that here it still belonged to the, to the upper class. Now it's changing and there's a huge struggle.
1: Years ago, I read a book called The Confusion of Conversion about the, the story in India. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you convert to Christianity, what does, that, what does that do to the caste system? So the main reason that many people converted to Roman Catholicism or uh,
6: these other branches of uh, established Christianity or legal Christianity. There, there are, In fact, in India, currently, there are only three churches which are uh, which are legal, or which are uh, accepted by the government of India, which is the Roman Catholicism, the Church of South India, and the Evangelical Churches of India. Oh, no, sorry, the Eastern Orthodox, I think, the Orthodox Churches. So people who converted to, to these churches uh, were provided education and were provided a better life. So that is how the untouchables um, sort of found... Um, better pasture in life so otherwise they would always be within that system but then the problem uh still arises because uh, they will be kept away from the society because everybody kind of okay that's the reason why you converted into christianity it was to get away it was for certain benefits uh whether it's education or health or wealth or whatever so um and so that was one thing i guess yeah that's just about it mostly it's just, um, you, you, if you stay in that system of untouchable, you know, within the Hindu the, the the caste system, so you either have to struggle and you have to fight your way out, which is very difficult. So the best way was just to kind of attach yourself to Christianity. And so that was kind of, it's very open. Uh, it was very openly done. So just join here and you get school uh, education benefits for your kids and Um, You don't have to pay them.
1: And I think that gets at the complication of what we're talking about, the the Mm -hmm. power that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I I don't think, in other words, I don't think there's an easy solution for any of this. It's just Mm -hmm. the reality that is there. Japan is a little bit different in that, strangely enough, usually what happens is in, I think, the history of Christianity, that India is true to the pattern. I think Japan is not. That what tended to happen in Japan was that the samurai, who at the point of the Meiji Restoration, when the foreign powers are entering, they are the ones that are lost. In other words, they're made to put away their swords. There is no, There are no samurai. You know, that, that whole system is undone. And there is a turning. And of course, the samurai were the upper class. They were the elites. And they tended to embrace Christianity while the lower class of people tended to stay with the native religions, Shinto is kind of a, already a state religion, but the folk religions or with eventually Shintoism or Buddhism. I think that the pattern in Japan is, is, is kind of strange because Christianity has had a huge effect from the top down rather than from the, the bottom up. I, but I think the history of Christianity, in other words, I think we have to be cautious in doing this reading. I presume that the human tendency for all of us is to want to identify with the powerful. And if the church allows us to do that, well, that's the natural, easy way to go. How you negotiate that, I think, is problematic. But I think we, we first of all, have to see the problem and not just imagine, Oh, well, if I become Catholic, then I can get an education. That's a good thing. Uh, I'm not saying that's a bad, you know, but it's it's not a simple thing either. And of course, this is what the Japanese rulers recognized, that what the Western powers will do is convert us to Christianity, and then they'll take over the country. And so the religion, Christianity, was the religion of the foreign oppressors. Korea is exactly the opposite of Japan. In Korea, I think the per- percentages actually in Korea of, of Christians, of actively participating Christians, is higher than that in the United States. But of course, the religion there is that by be- embracing Christianity, you're embracing the religion of those who liberated Korea and the religion of the Japanese who occupied Korea and were the oppressors in is rejected in embracing Christianity.
4: Um, okay. Just, I just want to say one thing real quick. because I don't, don't want to go on too much, but it is Christianity, but it's a, it's a Christian, it's a Christianity baptized in, nationalism and um, materialism. So, I mean, basically the same thing as America. For example, when the tsunami hit in in Japan and I went there to 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 take some food to the people there, I asked the church for some money to help me out. And they gave me like $100 and they said, well, it would be a lot easier to help them out if they weren't trying to take this island that they keep claiming that South, South Korea is theirs and i was like man you guys not read anything about the gospel man did you not read any of the words of paul like like he's talking about the exact thing whenever he's quoting uh, from psalms when he says about you know about burning coals over people's heads so i'm just like man this is just it's just such an absolute contradiction so there's so many things so yeah they are very religious as in america but it's also like korea comes first so uh, korea is first money second and god's third. so
1: yeah yeah it's only in indiana that you guys escape all that christian nationalism i guess <laughs> <It's> already hard
2: <laughs> <laughs> i i have another um complication to introduce but i don't <laughs> want to get us too far I, I do think that it's germane to the conversation but I'm happy to have the conversation at a later time or at a better place. But I'm wondering because the conversation that we're having is has to do with truth, history and power. I'm wondering as you know I'm not I'm no fan of, of Constantine. I think it's a shame that even in the in my tradition Constantine is considered a saint while someone like Origen of Alexandria is not. However, just brushing up on the history a little bit and like Isaiah said I mean I'm no, I'm no historian or scholar but as big of a problem as I have with a Constantinian Christianity, I also want to acknowledge the fact that Christians during the, time, the, during the reign of Constantine were under a tremendous amount of brutal violence against them. They were being martyred. Their families were being killed. And so whenever Constantine in 313, I believe it was, issued the Edict of Milan, the Christians rejoiced because their, their persecution ended. But And that's part one of my complication. Part two, though, is actually more of a serious thing for me, and that is, is that Constantine will later convene the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea, by definition, is an attempt to tell the truth about who Jesus is. You know, the Council of Nicaea is attended by the bishops of the church. You know, these are the, the bishops you know, who are uh, deciding then what Christianity is, is going to become for the next well maybe forever right so in other words like the, the these powerful bishops convene a council under constantine to talk about the truth of christianity that i don't think any of us would want to reject you know it's i think that we're all nice tea and you know we all say that you know jesus was fully divine for instance and that you know he was fully human and so I guess this is a, this is again. I'm, I'm willing. Maybe this isn't the best time to have this conversation, Paul. But and I, and I don't mean to just throw a monkey wrench, you know, into the. But I do think that that's it's a complicated thing because here you have this powerful emperor convening what will become one of the most powerful and popular councils that dictate what our religion is. It's a, I don't I'm not I'm not saying that I have an answer here. I'm just kind of trying to go through the history to say, well, what is Christianity apart from the council convened under Constantine to tell us the truth? I mean, these bishops again, are prayerfully, you know, in dialogue and and remember, and and what of and what of the martyrs, you know, the Christian martyrs who die in defense of uh, little O Orthodoxy.
1: I'm happy to, I think we have to engage that. David, you were going to say something.
3: I, I love it. This is in, intriguing, is especially the, the whole thought and idea as far as how history is written and especially from, from the church's view, which you take it so if you take it here in the far lands of Indiana, the church is not necessarily just those visible places where there's a building. Those are not necessarily the, I mean, those are the dominant stories that are being Mm -hmm. written, but that's not what you're saying plays in a lot of areas.
1: I'm not trying to resolve the problem, Matt. In fact, I'm just trying to complicate it. And I think that the Constantinian, you know, the, the Council of Nicaea, in which Constantine declares himself the bishop of bishops, by most estimates, he's not a Christian yet. He's not going to actually embrace the faith fully until the end of his life. And so the bishop of bishops, who is not yet a Christian, is going to be the final editor of the council's proclamations. Part of those proclamations are in regard to what do we do with the Donatists, those in the church who, in fact, are refusing to accept back in the apostate, who during the persecution denied Christ, and so the Donatists say they're not welcome back in, whether they were right or wrong. The Council of Nicaea says, no, we're going to accept them back in, and then their lands are seized and their churches are closed. That is that Constantine, and in the Augustinian period, it's not just a problem that is outside the church, but power is going to be exercised by the sword so that the sword of Constantine decides who's in the church and who's outside of the church. The Arian controversy, too, of course, we, we uh, have an understanding of the Arian controversy. There, there was a heresy there, but the way they resolved it, they just pronounced the Arians are like the barbarians. And in fact, the barbarians and the Aryans are indistinguishable at points. So that literally you're going to have the Constantinian Christians slaughtering Aryan Christians and forcing the Donatists to close and declaring their you know, bishops and their hierarchy illegitimate. So whatever you do with the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed, you have to understand that what we're witnessing is a shift in power, in which power is going to control the forces in the church. And that is in no way to deny, you know, this is what uh, I think Jason asked N.T. Wright, you know, about the Constantinian shift that the Church of England, of course, is itself very Constantinian with its, you know, its robe bishops and its kind of arrogant presumptuousness. It just reeks of the regalness of a royal Christianity. And N.T. Wright said, well, what would you have had us do? And of course, that's the the point of this whole thing is that it's a very, it's not an easy solution. Yeah, I mean, I actually
2: like it. I, I like Wright's answer. It's a fair
1: answer. Yeah, no, that that. Oh well, let's just exceed to Constantine. Let's put on the robes of his organization of the church, and pretend like nothing happened. Yeah, that's a great answer. No, I, I'm being facetious. That's the answer that came down to us in the organization of the church. But of course, I think that in exceeding, not I don't know what could have been done or what might have been done. You know, some radical reformers said, well, what should have happened is that the bishops should have demanded that Constantine, in fact, revoke his powers of emperor, and if he's going to become a part of the church, that he has to give up that political power. Uh, Whether that's, you know, realistic or, or not, I don't know. But the point is that, yes, this is a good thing in part, and it's a bad thing in part And we have to see both elements and not simply accede to the powers of Constantine by imagining that legitimate Christianity is Constantinian. Or, and I'll, I'll be quick to say the other thing, that legitimate Christianity cannot in some way negotiate that Constantinian shift without completely caving into it the reality, I'm afraid, is going to be obscured for us because we're just blinded by what has been passed down to us. I think that reality has to be seen through the lens of uh, a Christocentric understanding and that what's really happening with with Constantine, uh, that's not necessarily a happy situation uh, for authentic New Testament Christianity. And of course, what I'm saying is that's a very radical Reformed notion. The churches that are Constantinian, of course, just embrace that, and they're shaped by that. And I would suggest that their theology, you know, is your theology left untouched by the notion that you can embrace this without harm? oh no, I think that your theology is going to be distorted. And of course, the end product of that is then the distorted views of even the very way, you know, the importance that is going to be put on theology, that the model of Christ is in some way going to be lost in the history of the Constantinian church, because that model is too radical. Jesus identifies with the poor. In the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us an alternative law, turn the other cheek. Uh, It's too much. And so the presumption of Constantinian Christians is, well, that was okay, you know, for Jesus. But now Christ has conquered in the emperor. And so history has shifted. And now Christ is with the powerful. Oh, I think that is a misunderstanding of the sense in which Christ is truly the model. And so just the very way in which we imagine that theology is more important than ethics, or we imagine that it's the teaching of Christ more than the life of Christ, or it's the teaching of the apostles more than the life of the apostles. A thing that will be regained in the Radical Reformation is the sense in which Christ is our model. In other words, we're not just to do what he said, but he is the model of what he said. And so a simple word like love, you understand that in the history of the Inquisition, in the history of just war, that word is going to be changed up so that you can actually kill the bodies to save the souls of those you love. Is that Christian love? to render the body, you know, this is James Baldwin, look at the dead bodies that are stacked up by the, you know, the, the supposed love of Christians. No, that's a tragedy in which the language of Christianity is rendered equivocal by the Constantinian shift. And we have to recognize that. But it it always does seem that the
6: more wise are always able to accept um, Christian thoughts or ideas, like even in India, right? So it was first accepted by the upper caste people. And so is that is that how Christianity has spread all over the um, I mean centuries? That...
1: I think that the tendency is just the opposite, you know, that what we see in the New Testament is it's not the, as Paul says, it's not the those of you who were wise, but it is those of you who were foolish, those of you who were outcast. And it's never simply one thing, you know, even in the Corinthian church to which Paul is saying that, you clearly have powerful people that in some way are put in control wrongly, but he's, he's saying that he's talking about the foolishness of the gospel. I think that is the tendency, is that the poor are usually, it's, it's that Christianity appeals not to the upper classes. You can never make a a singular statement because it's true that even in the first century church, you do have all classes of people that are are coming into the church. But my point would be to that the problem is that with the you know, in the history of the church that the tendency is that the wise in the eyes of the world are the ones who get to tell the story. And those who are, in fact, blind were blinded by the symbolic order of our cultures. That their experience may be the authentic, more authentic Christian experience.
3: I did find the article on the creation dealing dealing with creation and understanding understanding Genesis more from an, an ancient view rather than. The modern view that we usually put on it. I was trying to figure out, I, I mean, I loved it. I loved the article. I was just trying to figure out how that fit in somewhat with where we're going as a class.
1: Oh, great question. Yeah, the the point here, that's the article by John Walton, right? Yes. Yeah. So the, what we get in creation myths is usually violence as the founding, the uh, a kind of an originary violence out of which creation unfolds. And so the creation myth that many think that is written over and against is the Enuma Elish, in which the gods literally get in a fight, and the body of the gods, you know, one of the gods is the canopy of the heavens, so that literally the universe is founded in blood. It's founded in death. This is a very Girardian notion, you know, this is a Girardian reading, that in the creation myths of the world, that they're grounded in an originary violence. And I believe in the creation story of Genesis, there is an originary peace that is over and against that originary violence. There is an acknowledgement of chaos in Genesis 2, is it? But the chaos is not original. The chaos is subsequent to the original creation act of God. And then God orders, you know, he has control of the chaos. Of course, in an Aristotelian notion of peace, the idea is that we have to, in some way, control the chaos, that the struggle, that peace is the absence of war. I think in a biblical understanding, there's an originary peace that is there in Isaiah. It's there in Genesis. We're going to find it in various places in the old testament so that if we're going to understand christianity rightly against its jewish background part of the recognition we have to go through is to recognize that violence will tend to be the predominant symbolic order of things this will be just the way that people always assume that to control the chaos or to to gain the power to control the chaos, that's the human impetus to power. But the New Testament understanding is not that we gain power to control the chaos, but in some way, we recognize that it's God in Christ that has established peace. And we don't have to create that peace. We just have to participate in the peace of Christ. So that, yeah, I'm glad you asked the question. That's, uh, I, I, I was trying just to touch upon that throughout Judaism and throughout the Old Testament, there is an or, uh, original piece that I think is inclusive of nonviolence, which may sound strange, but these things are going to be pitted against one another, even in the Old Testament. There is a tension between the warrior God, who is killing the babies and striking down the enemy and then the God portrayed as in Genesis, or portrayed by Isaiah, or portrayed in the Psalms. Like with James Baldwin or James Cone, I don't think we should turn our eyes from this kind of cognitive dissonance that is created. I think we should look at it squarely and dwell there, because the problem that the scriptures themselves present to us are, I think, what is being resolved in the revelation that is there in the Old Testament, culminating in Christ. Yeah, that,
3: you know, now that you, you say all that, it all, it, it fits, and you now I appreciate going back over that. Um, I mean, I, I I love the article. That sounds good. I like that.
1: I don't know that, John, I, I use John Walton, and John Walton is sort of uh, blind to the sort of, the kind of picture I'm painting. He's the typical of Old Testament scholars, you know, say, well, look at this. This is a way of reading this. But what I would do with John Walton is say, well, he's discovered something that we now need to plug into that is actually recognized in the New Testament, that when John 1-1 in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, John is doing the creation story I think in the spirit that John Walton has rediscovered is there in Judaism, that it is a creation story that is captured in the temple. In other words, John 1.1 1, 1 is a story that culminates, uh, it's going to culminate in the so-called temple cleansing. But of course, the whole point of the temple was that it's a microcosmos in which the original creation event is such that God is at the center of the cosmos, and he's cleansing the creation of death, of sin and death. And so, the, you know, a way, this is kind of an, a non-Gerardian way of reading, and I'm not sure that I'd go back and forth on how to read the sacrificial system, but I think a way of reading it is to recognize, oh, that entire temple system is actually a ridding of violence and death, and not the notion that we need to give God blood so he'll be happy. Well,
5: what I was going to say earlier is that I think that what you're doing with this fits in very nicely with the whole bit you were doing on, uh, you know, Apocalyptic. With the, your vision of peace is that it's eschatological and that—I'm thinking of Gregory of Vista—that, you know, every—you know, something's true beginning is in its end. and so. If our, if our telos is union with God, with, with the God of peace, well, then of course, you know, in the beginning, there was peace, there was perfect Trinitarian love and fellowship and peace, not chaos, you know, but that, uh, so it's not that God is playing, let's make a deal. It's that God is inviting us to participate in the reality of himself, you know, of his own being, his peace that he invites us in. So it's not that uh, to establish it would be on the order of an idolatry, because it's we can't establish something that's already there, you know, that to do so would be an act of idolatry. But God is inviting us into his, into the divine life, which is a life of, of peace and of love and of uh, fellowship. This fits right along with what you've done with your whole project, with your whole theological project. Um, and I do think that Walton fits in nicely there with that, with that view of things. That what you're saying is, is that whenever we depart from peace, whether institutionally or personally or whatever. And, you know, we're just quite literally departing from the divine logic.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that gets it. And this is, of course, something that we, you know, I've done a lot with it psychologically. But as if not, the uh, word that the Hutterites will come up with is Galassenheit. I think that Heidegger picks up Galassenheit. That is that there is this Kind of quietism. There is a, a kind of realization in the midst of you know this world's chaos that we have access to a calm or peace, uh, a kind of as-if notness. The Glassenheit translates a letting go of things. Letting go is not a destruction of things. It's not, oh, I'm gonna change up the symbolic order. This letting go of things is. Well, that's there and we have to participate in it, but it's not definitive of who we are. And so I think it's descriptive. And I don't mean to reduce it to the psychological, but boy, we wouldn't want to leave the psychological out of it because I think ultimately, this is certainly a piece that we can enjoy. You know, the quietism can be taken too far, you know, the notion of pacifism. The passive element, I think, can be overdone, and of course, I think that Jesus was not passive. But I think we need to do both things. We need to recognize that there is this peaceableness, but that itself is a kind of challenge to the way that the world would shape our psychological reality. Just just for me to get an idea of what we're doing here, the week one is all about what exactly. So week one, what I'm trying to do is go through the understanding that peace is established in the Old Testament. The vision of peace in the Old Testament. I don't mean to do what actually John Walton does. I don't mean to picture the Old Testament as an isolated entity apart from the New Testament. But what I mean to do is say, well, given the reality of the New Testament, we can read Genesis and other parts of the Old Testament and recognize, oh, this is already proclaiming the kingdom of God that Christ is going to establish. And so that's part of the idea is that, you know, here I have a hermeneutic of peace, the spiritual reading of the Old Testament. Matt is the inspiration with origin. Matt put me on to origin, and so there I'm doing a bit with, you know, and origin, what's the dates on origin, Matt?
5: Late 3rd century, early... So, you know, around 300, 310,
1: 320. So maybe, you know, an example of one of the earliest theologies we have. And how how are the Christians reading the Old Testament? They're not reading the Old Testament the way that we've all been trained. You know, day one of, of freshman hermeneutics is, okay, them old guys read the Old Testament allegorically. We've got to get rid of that and lead, read it literally. Whoa, we just did away with with church history, you know. And so this is a, a returning to a theological reading, uh, uh, you know, whether allegorical is the right word, but at least recognizing that literal flat reading of the Old Testament as if it's of equal weight with the New Testament is just going to flatten out the authority of Christ and of the New Testament for us completely. And so the relationship between old and new is the relationship that you get in a kind of evolutionary understanding of revelation, that revelation evolves in everybody's estimate. That is that you have the beginning and then the culmination. You know, Jesus himself says there is no greater than John, but then he goes ahead and says, but I'm greater than John. Jesus is saying, oh, there's an evolution culminating in John, and I'm the end of that evolution. And so I think we have to read the Old Testament with this in mind, that we have an obscure understanding of God that is there in the Old Testament that we have to recognize and compare with the God revealed to us in Christ. I think the God of the Old Testament, we just have to acknowledge that some of, and Origen himself says this. He says that apart from Christ, that the book of Joshua or other depictions of God as a violent God demanding genocide, that's not worthy of the canon of the Bible unless we reread this theologically. And so I just think we have to deal with that and recognize that. That's part of what I'm doing. The other part here, you know, with the prompt. Uh, war is more humane when God is left out of it. So a crusade is a complete obliteration of the enemy. We have a crusader God presented in the Old Testament, and in the crusades, they're going to pick up that idea. And so Bainton is laying out the, you know, the idea, well, actually, if they just leave God out of it, as the Greek city-states did, or as later the Christian princes do, that's more huge. So it's a very simple idea. Yeah, once god gets into the mix, a holy war is bloodier historically than a just war. Geno, did that did that get it? Oh, yes. Yeah. There's two points of departure we can have. I think our natural tendency is that we just think in categories of violence. The othering the I think that's just the world that we have. And to get back to peace is going to have to be setting aside the sense in which we're all integrated into violence. Good class. Okay, good deal, good deal. I, I, great questions, great conversation. Same time next week then. David, if- Yeah,
3: I'll, I'll let you know. Um, we we might be getting away for two or three days, so I don't know what kind of coverage I'll have in, in the middle of Tennessee,
1: so we'll see. Oh yeah, you should break up your vacation. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, uh, that's not going to happen only because of my wife, so. <laughs> I understand.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm sorry, honey. We have to put the surfboards down. I got to run in. That's right. That's I, right. I, I don't imagine you're surfing in Tennessee.
3: <laughs> no, I'm not. But um, if you want to see violence, that will happen if if I if I somehow mess, mess something up with my wife. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you want to maintain peace. That's that's the goal. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good
0: see everybody. see you guys again. All right. You. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.